Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Big thanks to eBay for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Passion, drive, patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. We're talking superchargers, turbos, exhaust kits, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need for the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Edelbrock, Holly, Wyand. Today, these names are synonymous with big performance, each with unique legacies reaching back to the early days of hot rodding. But there's one name that eclipses all of them, not just in name recognition, but with a legacy of its own that touches nearly every form of motorsport. I'm talking about the one and only Mickey Thompson. Unfortunately, this story does not have a happy ending. In a cruel twist of fate, Mickey's accomplishments behind the wheel are often overshadowed by the vicious murder of both he and his wife. The Thompson murders sent shockwaves through the world of motorsport and popular culture. Who would want to kill one of the biggest names in the industry, and why? By the end of this two-part series, we're gonna lay out the facts of this notorious case, explain how it took the police so long to solve it, and see how the power of family is sometimes the only thing keeping an investigation going. While Mickey's story ends in tragedy, there is so much more to his life than that. From his teenage years street racing in the San Fernando Valley, to managing the legendary Lions Drag Strip to becoming the fastest man on four wheels. Mickey Thompson was a speed-obsessed trailblazer through and through. Before we get into the case, today we're gonna analyze and celebrate his life and figure out how he became a racing titan in the process. Today on Pass Gas, it's Mickey Thompson. Pass Gas Podcast, it's about cars, it's not about sports. It's Mickey Thompson time. <laughs> I'm pumped. Mickey Thompson time. It's lit. Oh, it's oh yeah. Mickey Thompson time. 
Welcome back to Pass Gas, everybody. I am your host, uh, Nolan Sykes, as always, joined by the other hosts of the show. <laughs> we got James Pumphrey. Mustard on the beat. That's right. Going through your new your new catchphrases. <laughs> Definitely yours. No one else's. And park that big Mac truck inside of my little garage. <laughs> and Joe Weber. Fired up. Also, Wink Wink Nation and uh, what's my other one again? Keep it juiced. <laughs> I- Keep it juiced. Keep it juiced. Keep it juiced. Keep it juiced. Um, Joe, you had to postpone. Megusta. <laughs> that's mine. That's my new one. Megusta. I feel like that's bordering on appropriation. Megusta. I like it. <laughs> oh, okay. Direct translation. That's your thing. Okay. That's good. I like it. <laughs> I love that. Uh, may encounter that. How about that? Um. All right, so what do you guys? What do you guys? Uh, how familiar, rather, are you guys with Mickey Thompson? Uh, I know that he makes the tires, the Drag Boys. Does he make? Uh, do they make off-road tires? Too? Oh yeah. Um, and then I know that he um had a gold mine. Whoa, really? A actual gold mine? At some point. Yeah. I don't know about that. Because uh, wasn't he the one who went and like, uh, got Smoky Eunuch into gold mining? Maybe. Yeah. I remember Smokey had one, but that sounds vaguely yeah, familiar. Yeah, Mickey Thompson who who like got Smokey into the into the game, I believe. I haven't heard of any of this, so I'm I'm excited to dive into this and I always feel out of the loop in some way, but this one is like I should have known about this dude. There are no Google results for Mickey Thompson gold mine, but that uh, you know, maybe it's true. We have to go find Mickey Thompson's gold. <laughs> yeah city slickers too baby <laughs> all right uh so let's just get into it mickey thompson was born marion lee thompson jr on december 7th 1928 in san fernando california he went by mickey and not marion because in his own words quote a girl's name would mean even more fighting i do like the name marion though that's pretty cool yeah I also like that he said even more fighting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, as we'll see. Yeah, he guy likes to get into it. The San Fernando Valley, home to Ventura Boulevard and Mulholland Drive, was a fitting birthplace for a kid who would become defined by hot rods and dragsters. The valley is one of the original cradles of car culture. And I, I will say uh, it still is today. It's very. I, I went to CSU Northridge up there in the valley, and it is a muscle car town. Everyone drives either a, ch- a Charger, Challenger, Camaro, or Mustang. It's pretty cool. I haven't met many people from the Valley with a Valley accent. Most of like the oh, Valley yeah. girls and Valley boys that I've talked to are from like Hollywood and Venice, specifically Venice, but never really, never, never from the Valley. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of people, CSU Northridge is a commuter school. There's a lot of people from that area that go there and I never really heard that typical valley you know yeah i think it's kind of a passe kind of thing now it was big at a time i don't think it's as big anymore uh you got to meet some people from venice because it's very much alive <laughs> well not in the valley is what i'm saying i think that the the new thing is the vo- not new but like the the big vocal fad was the vocal fry oh god yeah the kardashian the, vocal the fry kardashian we got canceled. Oh. Our show got canceled oh, because no. we have less views per episode than Donut does per video. <laughs> <laughs> they directly 
Chris Kardashian directly sourced us. Did you see that Onion article that was like, the show ends when I want it to end <laughs> as Chris yeah. drives into the ocean? <laughs> yeah. I will say uh, Kendall Jenner's Architecture Digest open door episode is uh, pretty cool. She's got a cool house, and that's all I'll say on that. That rich girl has a cool house? Whoa. It's not just a cool house, James. There's a difference. Like, If you watch those videos, there's like rich people houses... And then there's there's rich people houses with no taste, and there's rich people houses with actual taste and like a defined style. Kendall Jenner, uh-huh. and then Mark Mark Ronson, Mark Ronson. Has, Mark Ronson is the best. He's one. got a very cool house. His is not annoying at no, all. No, he's chill. I, w- I would like to hang out with Mark Ronson. I don't know much about oh, his music, 100%, but I want to go dude. to that house. One hundred percent, dude. Anyway, uh, that's that's our only uh, Hollywood uh, digression for the episode. <laughs> nope. <laughs> California's on fire right now, guys. So much so that I got a check engine light yesterday because I was putting on the new intake in my car and then like I stopped because I needed another tool. And then I put my old one back together, but I didn't tighten the thing for the math yeah. enough. And I just sucked in a bunch of ash and it like... Oh, no covered my math i have a math cleaner if you need it uh i had a check engine light a few days ago uh it was not fire related it just turns out that one of my coil packs was bad and i had to change it out and that fixed it so i'm pretty happy it didn't take mickey long to discover his love for both driving and working on cars at age 12 mickey and his dad entered a soapbox derby mickey's first race also became his first car modding experience with the help of his dad, he bought a couple of batteries and hooked them up to the car so that he could drive it back up the hill after the race. The mechanical fascination continued into Mickey's teenage years. Nothing in the family house was safe from his experiments. He took apart the family laundry machine to put the gas motor into a go-kart. <laughs> <laughs> Gas-powered laundry machine? Is that like an outhouse Sick. version of a laundry machine? <laughs> it might be. And also a laundry machine? What? Isn't it just a washer? <laughs> I wish I had a washer. I, I mean, there's one in my building, but like it takes quarters and everything. It's just very inconvenient. When I was up at my parents, they were like, oh, we've got some quarters for you. And they like took out a big ass coin jar that they had in their closet. And I got $47 worth uh, of yeah. quarters. That'll last about a week and a half. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So you had the, the, the washing machine go-kart. He then stole his sister's roller skate wheels and put them on a soapbox, foreshadowing the so-called roller skate cars that Mickey would introduce to NASCAR a couple decades later, but more on that soon. By the time Mickey was 14, he got his first big boy ride, a 1927 2.8 liter, four-cylinder, 26-horsepower car that he purchased for the price of (laughs) $7.50, the equivalent of 114 bucks today. That's a good deal. It's a great deal. He didn't have his license yet, but it didn't stop him from racing the Chevy on the dry lake beds of Southern California. Hell yeah, dude. Talking El Mirage, baby. El Mirage, baby. Cars would define the significant moments of Mickey's life. At age 16, he met his first wife, Judy, at a stop sign off the Pacific Coast Highway when he pulled up and challenged her to a race. That's cool. Oh, when I was in high school, um, I had a 240SX, like with uh, just a stock motor. And uh, I pulled up neck, like at a stop sign with like this girl 
that I lost my virginity to. This is like two days after I lost my virginity. And I was like, I got a girl in my car. And I pulled up next to this house to this first gen eclipse. Oh, oh, oh I know where this is and going. Like, and <laughs> there were like twins happen. in it. Yeah. And there were twins in it. And like, it was like loud. And like, at that point I was like, this is a fast car. Yeah. And there are these two identical nerd ass looking twins <laughs> in the, in the car. And uh, like that added to it because I was like, these guys share this car. They're the same person. <laughs> they look like freaking nerds. Two of the same nerd is just making this car fast. They don't even wasting their time with girls like me. And she leans out the window. She goes, you want to race? <laughs> and they just look back. They go, you're going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> and like they were like wouldn't even like waste their time <laughs> i was like they're right they, we will lose that is a much faster car and then she never called you again no then her boyfriend beat me up i didn't know she had a boyfriend but she did that does complicate things yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway mickey and judy's dates would often include dumpster diving behind car dealerships i love that for discarded parts that mickey could salvage and use <laughs> Hold a flashlight. I see I think I see a bumper down here. <laughs> it was like if Donut wrote a rom-com and Judy for her part was into it. She later became a skilled driver in her own right. Besides his new girlfriend, cars were all Mickey cared about and school took a back seat. In Judy's words, quote, "I used to do his homework for him." At first, I tried to do it in his handwriting, but eventually I just gave up and Mickey was turning in assignments in my handwriting. When Mickey graduated, the vice principal from his school came over and he congratulated me. <laughs> <laughs> Little old me. In exchange for schoolwork, Mickey introduced Judy to a life of high-speed thrills. They were teenagers in the post-war boom and California was hot rod central. A typical evening would entail a trip to the drive-in followed by pink slip races among the orange groves of West Covina. Mickey would almost always win, but Judy would make him give the pink slips back. <laughs> she didn't think it was right to take someone's car. <laughs> this is like some two-lane blacktop, American graffiti stuff. I'm so jealous of this. I wish that life was like this. Now the world is on fire. There's a deadly virus outside. We're in a forever war. <laughs> And people are just getting snatched off the streets by unmarked uh, federal agents. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Yeah, it's scary, right? Now. Yeah, man. If like they brought back drive-in theaters and milkshakes, things would go back to normal. <laughs> yeah, man. Can I just go freaking do some pink slip races among the orange groves of West Covina? <laughs> now our milkshakes don't even have milk. They got plant milk and there's ash in it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine like building a hot rod and you're like yeah i'm gonna go get some pink slips and then immediately losing your car <laughs> in like the first your race like, like damn it. <laughs> we should uh we should do pink slip races at donut and just like own each other's cars like just like let let us keep them yeah like i beat nolan no nolan you can keep your car but i own it <laughs> we should uh collab with mr beast with something like that oh that'd be super fun we all race for pink yeah i would i want to race my beamer so i can just get it out of my hair and lose it right away <laughs> and then someone else, else has to deal with it yeah it's fun 
Mickey's dad was an Irish cop in Alhambra, which was a tough town at the time. When Mickey and Judy got busted for playing a game of so-called bumper tag on the streets of town, I want to play bumper tag. <laughs> the cops decided to send Mickey to his dad's precinct office instead of jail. Mickey begged to go to jail instead, but in please let me go to jail. <laughs> but he had to face his dad, who wordlessly took Mickey's driver's license and drove him home. For a kid as obsessed with cars as Mickey was, it was worse than a beating or a grounding or going to jail. Losing his license was the ultimate punishment. You got to tailor the punishment to the kid, you know? Yeah. Despite his tough cop dad, uh, Mickey himself was an adventurous, fun-loving guy. But because of a childhood sickness, he was small and his left arm was weak because of a car accident that had happened when he was eight years old. The doctors had recommended actually amputating the arm, but instead his dad filled a can with lead and tied it to Mickey's arm, <laughs> forcing him to strengthen it. Later on, Judy attributed Mickey's short temper to his small stature, calling it small man syndrome. Mickey was quick to start a fight if he thought someone was challenging him. When uh, you mentioned that he liked to get in fights, I immediately Googled Mickey Thompson height. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, he sounds like a little guy. And I'm 6'3", and like I have never started a fight. After his Chevy, Mickey picked up a roadster and started drag racing. Popular spots were lake beds in the Mojave Desert at Muroc and El Mirage. The dragsters were just simple frames and a motor. Aside from racing, life was moving fast for Mickey and Judy. At age 19, the pair secretly drove down to Tijuana and eloped. Two years later, they had an official wedding with their family, bought a tiny two-bedroom house in San Gabriel for 5700 bucks, or like $60,000 today, and had a baby daughter. Their life was basically a Tom Petty song at this point. Meanwhile, Mickey kept racing. He became a regular at the Santa Ana Drag Strip, the first commercial drag strip in the United States. 50 cents got you entry to either watch the races or compete yourself. It was Mickey's first taste of real speed, and he was instantly hooked. Mickey's times kept getting faster at Santa Ana. He hadn't been able to break the 100 mile per hour barrier. <clears throat> Sorry, every car will do that now. That would change when he ventured out to the Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah, a location that would loom large in Mickey's automotive career. 1950 was the first time a now 21-year-old Mickey went to Bonneville. He drove a flathead-powered 1936 Ford Coupe, Ooh, yeah. and later a custom-built four-cylinder Pontiac Dragster. Ooh. In 1952, he set a class record in a dual-engine coupe at Bonneville, reaching 194 miles per hour. Dang. That's fast. Can you, yeah, in 1952, dude? Yeah. That's hauling ass. <laughs> it was like a year... Wait, he like a year he couldn't hit a hundred, and then the mm -hmm. next year he hits almost two hundred. <laughs> yeah, in a car in 1952 with two engines that you and your friends made. <laughs> well, that's what's I think so cool about this particular point in like history when it comes to the car culture down here is that like it advanced so quickly once they started like really tinkering with stuff and figuring out how to make those speeds happen. It just accelerated. It was like exponential. Yeah, and this was like the center of it. Would you call it a renaissance? <laughs> Can I get you saying that, Nolan? Uh, you could say it's a. It was a renaissance, a virtual <laughs> renaissance. But like also to your point, Nolan. Like it's not like the guys in Detroit had 
this crazy technology and then these guys were just like mimicking it or anything like these hot rodders were at the center of automotive innovation at the time like dan gurney was one of the first dudes to like understand the concept of aerodynamics Mm. you know what i mean and like hot rodders really were these like sort of blue collar engineers yeah i mean that's what we like when we talk about we haven't mentioned it recently in an episode of up to speed but like ram chargers that was like a club within chrysler that you know they worked at the plant they were engineers in the factory in detroit but on the weekends they'd go out to the racetrack and they were hot rodding in their own right and bring those innovations that they found out at the drag strip to the uh, the drafting room, if you will, to improve the cars that the public could buy. From drag to draft. What a time to be alive. What a time. Nowadays, though, <laughs> turbos have just made everything more powerful than all these engines that they worked on, but much right. less uh, audibly interesting. Not to say that turbo engines can't sound good. I'm just saying most of them sound like vacuums. And that's fine because they make good power and they're very efficient. Well, back in Southern California, Mickey opened a muffler shop where he worked days. To provide for his family, he'd also work overnight shifts at the presses of the Los Angeles Times newspaper. Apart from his two jobs, he spent any free time he could racing whatever vehicle he could get his hands on, including sprint cars, motorcycles, and boats. Perhaps the worst of Mickey's many accidents was on a boat when he was ironically going 35 miles per hour, fully unprotected from impact. He ended up in a full body cast and was told he might never walk again. After designing his own rehab equipment at home, he was soon back to walking and obviously racing cars. Iron Man! He actually took the the gas-powered engine out of his blender and made a little wheelchair. <laughs> I I heard that it was the gas-powered engine out of his wife's hair dryer. I think that's something that like we should probably do. I mean, I know I went on a rant against boats recently. I love boats. But boat racing in particular is something that I would like to try at some point. My my grand my grandfather and my great uncle they uh they had a race they had a race boat that they would do down in the Long Beach Harbor like a drag boat uh i don't think it was drag boat it was like they would they had like said they'd set up circuits in Long Beach uh and do what? laps and stuff in boats um i just had two two different weird encounters with small powerful boats i watched one of the Pierce Brosnan uh bond movies oh yeah tomorrow or that's where he's got that yeah, and he's got that tiny little boat. And then I also watched the Class Action Park documentary uh, about that super dangerous water park. Yeah, mm-hmm. And they park. had tiny little jet boats, and they would drive them around the swamp. And the swamp had, like, so much oil and, like, snakes in it. <laughs> <laughs> when I was working at uh, Mike Porter's hot rod shop in Atascadero, I helped him put, what I think it was a 454 Chevy into a flat bottom boat dang it looked terrifying it sounds terrifying <laughs> mickey's first taste of high level auto racing as well as the risks that came with it would come in 1953 as he traveled to mexico to compete in an event known as the carrera panamericana or mexican road race the carrera was a 2000 mile five-day marathon mickey who was quickly developing a reputation as a smooth talker convinced a local Ford dealer to hook him up with a car. 
and entered with Roger Flores, a local teenager who Mickey had befriended as his navigator. The car was entered in the light stock division, which was limited to 115 miles per hour. The race did not go as planned. The cars took off in a mountain town known as Tejuantepec. A driver named Bob Christie drove his Ford off the road, and the crowd rushed over to gawk at the accident. Close behind, Mickey came around the corner and was suddenly confronted with a crowd of people, including, engraved in Mickey's memory, a woman carrying a child. Perhaps recalling his own childhood car accident, Mickey swerved, sending him over the same turn where Christie had crashed. The car flipped over and landed in the middle of the crowd, killing six people. Dang. The accident was covered in Life magazine with the caption, Disaster at Tehuantepec. But incredibly, it didn't stop Mickey and Roger from returning the very next year to compete again. Six people, dude. Yeah, I don't know if I could do that again if that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Mickey again drove a Ford, this one nicknamed the Ensaladera, or Salad Bowl, owing to a multicolored paint job. Inside the Salad Bowl was an overhead valve V8. And after the first day, Mickey finished in the lead, beating out professional race teams with factory cars. However, the next day, Mickey would hit a wall at 90 miles per hour. He was out of contention once again. Perhaps because of these misadventures in road racing, Mickey increasingly became focused on drag racing, going straight. Just like when he was a kid using washing machine parts and roller skate wheels, Mickey was just as fascinated by the mechanical tinkering side as the actual racing. Mickey's technical ingenuity reached new levels in 1954, when he was the first to develop a so-called slingshot dragster. Also known as a rail or digger dragster, a slingshot was a front-engine dragster design with the driver positioned behind the rear axle with the engine in front. The idea was to improve traction by placing more weight on the back wheels. The only downside was the extreme danger. The driver was literally sitting on top of the transmission, uh, right behind the engine, and at that time, they were very exposed. Any sort of mechanical failure, and the driver would bear the brunt of the damage directly to the face, including flames, hot oil, or flaming hot oil, all upwind of the driver's exposed face. They didn't have full-face helmets. They didn't have visors. Uh, these guys mostly, would they'd wear like motorcycle helmets. Nowadays, uh, the, the clutches and transmissions in these cars are... Uh, surrounded by a titanium sort of scatter shield just in case something explodes same thing with the rear differential we actually we have a front we have a rail dragster uh that me and my dad are gonna run in a few years here hell yeah uh and i i you know i've sat in it a few times to like get ready to fit the car and like just imagine like a big axle like you're like you're like straddling an axle and then the tires are right next to you Right outside uh -oh. the cage. Um, it's really cool, though. <laughs> <laughs> how, how big are you compared to your dad? Like, are you both going to be able to drive it? Uh, we're the same size about. Uh, he, I think he's still, like, a touch taller than me. Uh, my dad doesn't really have any interest in, in driving. He's more, he, he's really into, like, the engineering and, like, the tuning of it. I, I do hope that when we get it finished that he does drive it at some point though but he primarily wants me to drive i'm really looking forward to that because it was especially once you start bumping up the power once you start bumping up the power that's when like the skill of driving actually comes into play for drag racing mm -hmm. i 
really enjoy drag racing, but the problem is like at the lower levels when the cars aren't as powerful, they it really is just going straight. Yeah. Um, but once once you start moving up in classes and the, your your car becomes more powerful, you have to deal with things like wheel spin. You actually do have to turn the wheel while you're going down the track to correct the car. That's what yeah. I'm really interested in. Our first season, we're going to run in the lowest class, which is, I believe, any three for the rails. Um, you know, no power adders or anything like that, just running our Chevy engine that we have already. Um, but then we want to eventually start, maybe not nitro, but um, definitely a supercharged engine to uh, mm. make and mow power. You know what I'm saying? Maybe yeah, do yeah. nitro at some point, but... Uh, that's when you really start to feel those tires spinning as you're going down the track. Just be safe, Nolan. We need your brain. Yeah, that's true. I have a, I have my, I have a nitro fire suit and everything ready to go. So it's really hot. We should light you on fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's four layers. It's crazy. Mickey named this very first slingshot dragster the Panorama City Special. <laughs> <laughs> After a neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley, um, <laughs> unlike most dragsters of the time, the Panorama had a full fiberglass body with skirts over the rear wheels and a windshield that extended over the driver's head, as well as a cherry red paint job. At one of its first outings, the car achieved a 151 mile per hour pass at the San Fernando Raceway, becoming only the second dragster to ever top 150 miles per hour. The drag racing scene took note. The slingshot style became the industry standard for the next 20 years until rear engine dragsters started taking over in the 70s, mostly due to safety concerns. Yeah, I mean, uh, nowadays, the top fuel dragster class is all like at the in the NHRA at the pro level. It's all rear engine designs. I mean, they go 330 miles an hour and they're relatively safe compared to like uh Jetpacks or something like that, right? Yeah, compared to riding a snake. <laughs> no, I mean safety. <laughs> safety. Safety has really come a long way. Uh, like the tube chassis now are very strong. All the belts and like you know uh, things like a Hans device and helmets and everything. Do you know every snake has a tube chassis? <laughs> <laughs> there, I, within the last. 10 to 20 years, I think there's only been two deaths in the pro level, I'm pretty sure, unless I'm forgetting someone. But I mean, as far as racing goes and for what they're doing, it's pretty safe. Yeah, drag top fuel drag racing is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, if you've never gone to a top fuel event, uh, please go when it's safe to do so. Just literally shakes your bones, burns your face off. Like the smell of the gas is like weirdly enjoyable, but also <laughs> just it like hurts your eyes. Like you'll tear it's up. Basically, tear gas. Yeah, yeah. and it uh, it's the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's amazing. <laughs> Definitely go. I raced. I raced a top field dragster on foot. Yeah, we got to put that out. <laughs> yeah, we got to put that video out. It was one of my first videos I ever made it done. <laughs> Back when Donut was 90% pranks. Anyway, Mickey was at the forefront of a drag racing boom happening across the country. In the SoCal area, there were dozens of clubs with names like the Vulcans, Apollos, Crusaders, Lords, and Road Kings. Much of the racing was happening informally and on the street. Pull up to a red light, and when the light turned green, 
you race to the next intersection. Communities were concerned about the dangers, but it was clear racing wasn't going to go away anytime soon. In Los Angeles, the response was for the local Lions Club to lease land from the city and create the Lions Associated Drag Strip located near the Long Beach Harbor. Dang, dude. This episode is like... so sick. I love this episode so far because like all these locations... Like my dad grew up in Long Beach and Uh his whole thing was that he really wanted to race at Lions because that's where it was going down. But his dad wouldn't let him... Because uh, my grandpa had worked for Keith Black uh, for a little bit. My, my grandpa and his brother, Bob Sykes. Bob Sykes was one of Keith Black's like main engine builders. And so he hooked my grandpa up with a job at the shop. And my grandpa <laughs> did not like the racers. Because racers, <laughs> at, especially at that time, they were, they were guys like Smokey Eunuch. They were guys like yeah. Mickey Thompson. Just these troublemakers. Just these, <laughs> these yeah. goons that liked going fast. And my grandpa <laughs> wanted ne- wa- did not want my dad to be hanging out with those guys. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Big thanks to eBay for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Passion. Drive. Patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. We're talking superchargers, turbos, exhaust kits, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need for the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. 
That's A-N-G-I dot com. Mickey at 27 was already an old timer in the youthful scene. He got hired for the only job at the new facility as track manager, making $75 a week. That's $725 nowadays. Mickey had already raced at tracks around the United States, and he determined that now that he was the boss, he would do things differently. In the words of his wife, Judy, he had a lot of ideas. He had all the energy anyone could ask for. He fed them the most impressive lines of bullshit, and then he made it happen. Mickey stayed true to his word. He immediately started innovating in ways that would shape the sport of drag racing for generations. For instance, he replaced the usual flag start with a switch-operated Christmas tree light system with red, amber, and green lights that lit up in sequence to start a race. He invented the Christmas tree? Yeah. Wow. That's insane. I mean, that alone. Yeah, that's huge. Like, what'd your grandpa do? Oh, he invented the Christmas tree for drag racing. Wow. Do you know Nolan's grandpa invented the Christmas tree for... (laughs) (laughs) But he hated Christmas tree guys that were all just wild. (laughs) (laughs) Opening day saw 200 cars racing and 10,000 fans in attendance. Many times more than what Mickey and his all-volunteer team were expecting. One reporter summed up the madness. The PA system broke down. The portable toilets overflowed. The food supply ran out. The dust was unreal. The crowd piled right onto the track to watch the action. Pandemonium prevailed. In other words, opening day at Lions was an unqualified success. <laughs> I thought you were going to say circus. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey had proved himself in yet another arena. In addition to showing his talent as a racer and an innovator, he can now claim to be a successful promoter. Mickey ran his track with an iron fist. If he thought someone was cheating or breaking the rules, he'd threaten to fight him. Sometimes he'd be too busy to fight, so he'd tell the guy to wait until after he was done working, and then he'd fight him. <laughs> According to one of Mickey's buddies, this could happen so frequently that Mickey would have a dozen guys out there he had to fight at the end of the day. <laughs> what, do you think he would just like fight him? Like, all right, your turn, pal. (laughs) 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 Your turn, pal. (laughs) (laughs) All right, buddy, step him up. And then he gets beat up, and now when he loses that fight, he's like, all right, who's next? (laughs) Now you two fight each other. (laughs) This is all part of a larger-than-life character that Mickey was developing to promote both himself and his track. He entered Le Mans organized foot races around the track for fans, and even had a horse brought in to race a Chevy hot rod (laughs) on an all-dirt path (laughs) along the side of the track. Dude, that's sick. It's sick. (laughs) Dude, that's like fun sideshow, literally. That is actually one of my, like, I have like a sort of like a plan to like save the NHRA because like attendance Mm -hmm. is kind of down and all that. There needs to be more sideshow stuff like this between rounds. Yeah, I think the same thing for like FD. Like they need to have like NASCAR should buy Formula Drift and do it on Saturday at the same track. Might be pretty tight. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Saturdays, Nikki made Saturday's date night at Lions. He added spotlights and emceed the show over the PA, hyping up every race to the best of his abilities. Judy worked in the scoring tower. Soon Mickey had a small staff who earned a few bucks for a night of helping out. 
And the guys who worked with him saw an incredibly loyal and charming guy underneath this tough little, tough little exterior. <laughs> In the words of one of his ex-employees, if Mickey called me and told me he was building a drag strip in the middle of the desert and needed someone to work with him, I'd drop my hat and be there in a second. Mickey had a hard, not no hat rule. <laughs> he said, I'm the only one who gets to wear a hat. That part, that part of the quote was off the record. <laughs> said it made everybody too much taller. <laughs> and At one point, he had a dozen hats ready to fight. <laughs> one of these connections would change the trajectory of Mickey's career. Uh, his name was Fritz Voigt, but it took a while for the two men to actually connect. Here's a bit of background. A few years earlier, 1951, the National Hot Rod Association had been created to formulate rules for the newborn sport. The NHRA was an effort to improve the reputation of drag racing, which was viewed with the same skepticism that boomers, you know, think about TikTok or Gogurt today, the <laughs> yogurt of the future. Among their effort were short films like The Cool Hot Rod, in which a bad boy teen racer learns that a reckless kid in an old junker is not a hot rodder at all. He's a square. <laughs> oh, no. That's the worst. You don't want to be a square, man. No way, dude. Beyond these PSAs, the NHRA also started organizing major drag racing events. The first of these was a national meet held in 1955 in Great Bend, Kansas. Great Bend had a World War II era airfield with long tracks and plenty of distance from anyone who would complain. Mickey had brought his dragster along and was working on it. He had installed a velvet touch clutch disc, which was very heavy. And that's when Fritz Voigt approached Mickey for the first time. Fritz would prove to be Mickey's match in terms of bluntness as well as mechanical know-how with dragsters. Fritz suggested Mickey use a lighter disc, clutch disc rather, but Mickey acted like he didn't even hear him and just kept working on his car. Fritz took offense to the cold shoulder and decided to avoid Mickey and the Lions drag strip altogether. Both men were one to carry a grudge, which sounds like a lot of old racers I know. However, their wives became friends and eventually the two rivals were forced to go on double dates. In Fritz's words, quote, I always drove whenever we went out together. Mickey always had a piece of shit car because he put all his money into his race cars <laughs> it's just like the the, the donut rom-com we always wanted this actually would make a good movie eventually the two guys realized their wives were going to remain friends and decided to collaborate on a project together a little collab the idea was to put top speed at an absolute premium no suspension and a minimal profile with two Chrysler engines, they built a dual-engine, four-wheel-drive dragster with an aluminum streamlined body. They took it to Bonneville, where the salt flats would allow them to take the car to its limits. The speed record at the time was 266.2 miles per hour, set by the Denver-based driver Bill Kens. On his first run, Mickey hit 241 miles per. The next day, by switching to methanol in the rear engine, they just edged out Ken's mark with an average speed of 266.866 miles per hour. Fritz and Mickey were determined to keep pushing and added nitromethane, which took them up to a top speed of 294 miles per hour, shattering the previous record by a whopping 
28 miles per dang wow. that's fast fritz and mickey are like the most 1950s names ever <laughs> yeah. oh yeah very much so the achievement made national news mickey enjoyed the first of many brushes with fame that he would enjoy in his career it brought him more than just a taste of glory in detroit a pontiac rep named seaman bunky nudson reached out to mickey wait bunky nudson's real name is seaman s-e-m-o-n okay there might be a different way to pronounce it but we'll just call him bunky uh bunky wanted to ditch pontiac's stodgy brand image by sponsoring nascar and other flashy ventures with funding secured for the first time mickey didn't need to scrounge for every last part and save up for expensive fuels and tires he set his sights on a new challenge the speed of 394.19 miles per hour the unlimited land speed record for a piston-driven wheeled vehicle it was held by the british-born john cobb who had set it back in 1947 with the railton mobile special a teardrop-shaped monstrosity driven by twin airplane engines no. wedged no <laughs> <laughs> no thanks no thank you joe's not into it nah which uh weighed over three <laughs> no. tons it was like an elephant with a jetpack strapped to its back Whoa, this thing is really cool looking. Whoa. Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. It's like the coolest yeah, looking thing ever. What's that little mm -hmm. port at the front? Is that a windshield? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a death trap. Yeah, I think you lay like this, right? <laughs> no, you're sitting. You, there's, a, there's a few pics of the, uh, the seating configuration. You definitely sit normally, but you're at the very front of it. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Uh, that little bubble is... But then there's there's some sort of intake at like the front of the bumper. Yeah, yeah. What oh, would be I the see bumper. that. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool looking. It's so sci-fi. Yeah. But as you, as you mentioned, James, this is like when they started figuring out that like slippery shapes were like yeah. the way to go. Because, I mean, World War II had passed. You know, that was like the glory days of of fighter planes and like innovation yeah like yeah forced to innovate pretty quickly man it's so cool yeah it's enormous but it's bad that's what's so cool about land speed racing is that like weight actually doesn't matter all that much yeah because you actually do want a little more yeah. weight on pushing on those tires because normally you're you're pushing so much um power down to the tires and they're super skinny mm -hmm. so you you need all the help you can get when it comes to traction Mm -hmm. and you're like at Bonneville at least the longest course is six miles long so you have plenty of time to get up to speed hey. anyway Mickey and Fritz's innovation would be similarly monstrous Mickey hit up Bunky who sent him and Fritz four used uh, V8 engines which was nothing glamorous but they would do the trick two engines would be mounted backwards and power the front wheels what? two engines facing <laughs> forward would power the rear the entire rig weighed almost 7,000 pounds. Mickey got deep into the study of engines, figuring out how to design the engine layout and enclosure to maximize power and heat distribution. However, at the end of the day, it still was a homebrew project and Mickey was not an engineer. According to Fritz, Mickey would quote, <laughs> Weld the shit out of it. The frame went straight, then out a little, then back in. Mickey just buzz boxed the out of it and then a big high school kid named Cecil Shrimp would come over would come over in the evenings and grind the welds for hours every day Mickey would come back and weld the shit out of it again it's just Mickey and Fritz and Bunky and Shrimpy 
And they're all just <laughs> welding stuff all night. <laughs> the car was designed to meet a challenge, and it was giving a fitting name for the task. Challenger 1. Mickey's ability for promotion worked wonders. In addition to support from Pontiac, he scored a $10,000 check from Goodyear to cover the cost of the tires. In 1959, Challenger 1 was finally ready for Bonneville. Mickey managed his expectations, telling the press that, quote, anything over 325 miles per will make us happy this first time out. The trickiest part was managing gears on a vehicle that boasted four engines. There were four separate clutches, all governed by a single foot pedal. Four three-speed transmissions were routed to a single shifter. He had to wear a welding mask with an oxygen tube oh to God. drive. The fumes from the nitromethane were potentially deadly. Yeah, I mean, it takes all the oxygen out of the air and replaces it with these noxious fumes. His entire view of the salt flat was out of a two-by-two square inch of glass. I have so much respect for people who do this or who did this. Like, it seems just like a death trap, and there's always, like, a little tiny slit that you're looking out at going 400 miles per hour. Like, it's ins- it's a death wish. This thing looks insane, too. Yeah. It's basically like I love this a thing. slingshot dragster with an engine at all the wheels. The team had mixed results in their first outing. They exceeded Mickey's undersell of 325, reaching speeds in the upper 300s, but 400-plus still seemed far away. One issue was that nobody on the team, not just Mickey, were engineers. There were no real calculations involved. They just figured big engines plus streamlined body equals speed. And they were generally correct. But when a British engineer named George Aston heard about the team's issues, he was able to run some quick calculations and with absolute certainty told Mickey's crew that they were 300 to 400 horsepower short of a vehicle that could physically break 400 miles per hour. At the end of the day, physics are physics. Yep. Can't fight with Dr. Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, Mickey right. Thompson could. He was one of the 12 people waiting to fight. <laughs> smash a freaking apple on your head, you nerd. <laughs> Meanwhile, in 1960, Mickey turned his attention to a drag racer he called the Assault. The warlike name had a purpose. In the 1930s, the Nazis had set several speed records in various categories, and many of the records still stood. Mickey, with his talent for promotion, recognized the media value of taking on the Nazis, even if the war had been over for 15 years. Nazi bashing is evergreen. The assault featured a supercharged Pontiac engine, an aluminum body, magnesium wheels, disc brakes, and a 16-foot parachute. It wasn't nearly as beefy as the Challenger. The idea was to use the assault to break acceleration records. And it worked. Hitler did a barrel roll in his grave as the Nazi records were smashed. Mickey would later describe the Assault as his favorite car he ever built. Mickey then returned to the Challenger, determined to break the 400-mile-per-hour barrier. He applied the supercharged setup that his team had developed on the Assault, and although he didn't really ever dedicate himself to all the intensive engineering analysis that made many people thought was necessary to breaking the barrier, he ended up not needing it. On September 9th, 1960, Mickey hit the Bonneville Salt Flats after weeks of rain delays, and with the conditions perfect, hit an unearthly 406.60 miles per hour. And with that, the LA Times declared, quote, 
Mickey Thompson became the world's fastest man on wheels. Extra, extra. <laughs> extra, extra. Hey, mister, you want to buy a carrot? <laughs> uh, what? Yeah, you want to buy mean... a carrot, mister, to go with your newspaper? Eat a carrot, read the paper. <laughs> I I mean, it, it does make the eyesight better. Yeah, I'll take two. That'll be a half a cent, mister. The only hitch was that the speed wouldn't stand as an official record. To make it official, you had to average your time in two directions to account for any wind assistance. You had to go out and back. On his run back, one of Mickey's four engines failed. But still, he had broken 400 miles per hour, and the public didn't really care to dwell on the technicalities. By this point, Mickey was a national celebrity. He toured the country with Judy, who was also getting behind the wheel of Pontiac Dragsters in a series of promotional events, and often winning. Mickey was now close with John DeLorean over at Pontiac, who was still in his 30s, but already well on his way to becoming a major player in Detroit. If you haven't listened to our DeLorean series yet, I think it's pretty fun, and I think you should. This is pre-chin implant John DeLorean. Yeah, pre Pre chin, pre, uh, pre divorcing his wife, the model and actress. Um, he had a type and dating the models and actresses. Uh, in 1959, Mickey founded Mickey Thompson Enterprises, which started out building custom aluminum pistons, but would quickly expand into other ventures. He also continued to manage the Lions drag strip in Long Beach. His lifestyle was quickly accelerating beyond his blue collar roots, however. To impress prospective sponsors, Mickey bought a house with a swimming pool and views in the expensive neighborhood of Palos Verdes. Ooh. Taking a page out of Joe Exotic's book, he discovered a love for exotic animals and even adopted a pet lion named Charlie before neighbors successfully begged him to get rid of the uh, big cat. That's awesome. Living the dream, dude. I'm in Palos Verdes with my lion, and I do race cars. Uh, yeah. I got my big pet. I got my big cat. I got my Arnold Palmer. I got my shade. I got my lounge chair. I'm good. I'm <laughs> relaxed. Mickey was a success, but he was never content with what he had. He'd already revolutionized drag racing, both by helping popularize it with his work at the Lions Drag Strip and pushing the limits of the sport at Bonneville with the Challenger. Still in his early 30s, his next venture would take him to one of the meccas of car racing, the Indianapolis 500. He got to work with the British chassis designer John Crossthwaite, as well as Fritz Voigt, who was now Thompson's chief mechanic. Working insanely fast, in 120 days, Thompson would develop not one, but three cars for the 1962 Indy 500. And his design innovation would turn the sport not upside down, but backwards Instead of the Offenhauser front-engine roadster design that had prevailed in Indy for years, Thompson's cars had mid-mounted aluminum Buick V8s and fully independent suspension. They were also the first stock engines entered at Indy in over 15 years. Now, Mickey was cocky, but not cocky enough to think he could drive his own car at Indy. He needed someone with experience, and he found that someone, an F1 driver, my boy, Dan Gurney who's excited <laughs> by Mickey's blend of enthusiasm and innovative spirit. Fun fact, Gurney was the first to spray champagne on the podium after winning Le Mans in 1967, spawning a tradition across auto racing and other sports that continues to this day. 
Although Thompson's Buick didn't have the horsepower of its competitors, it ran well, and Gurney was in ninth until the gearbox seized and he had to retire on lap 94, placing 20th out of 33 cars. The rest of the field took note. Thompson and Gurney's efforts earned the team the Mechanical Achievement Award. How often do they give those out? Every season or what? Uh, I've never won one, so I'm not sure. Hmm. I won a couple, but I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The next year, in 1963, Thompson and Crosswaite returned with the Harvey Aluminum Special Roller Skate Car, so named for its thin tires, 12-inch diameter with 7-inch wide up front and 9 in the back. Whoa, those are small. Cars finished in the middle of the pack, but their promise was clear, leading to complaints amongst rival drivers, mostly focused on the car's low weight and tire profile. The sport responded by doing something nobody had thought necessary up until that point, instituting minimum car weight and tire size requirements for future races. These regulations would cause mayhem for Mickey's team in 1964. His car that year was known as the Sears All-State Special. Thompson recruited Dave McDonald, another Carroll Shelby driver, who was known as the master of oversteer for his style of drifting through turns at top speeds. That's sick. The car was meant to be a continuation of the 63 roller skate design. Mickey had a deal with Sears to supply 12-inch tires, but due to the new rules implemented, they would have to rush a set of 15-inch wheels to the team. Mickey had used Chevy engines in 1963, but in 74 made a deal with Ford to switch to their new dual overhead cam engine, which was heavier than the Chevy and wouldn't be ready until shortly before the race. The car was designed to be highly aerodynamic and low profile, but the bigger wheels put the body higher and wreaked havoc on the aerodynamics. The first tests were disastrous. Jim Clark reportedly spotted Thompson's car moving strangely on the track and followed him into the pits to warn him to, quote, Get out of that car, mate. Just walk away. (laughs) (laughs) I realized halfway through that he was, that Jim Clark was Australian. McDonald reportedly never practiced with a full tank because Mickey was so focused on the car's top speed. He wasn't Australian. He's a Brit. Yeah, he's British. And on qualifying day, the top speed was indeed there. And Thompson qualified a respectable 14th. He started climbing and got to 10th after two laps. However, the car was handling strangely, alarming other drivers on the track. As McDonald went to pass, he moved left and the nose of the car lifted, sliding him across the track and causing him to strike the inside wall, lighting the gas tank on fire. Seconds later, the car was T-boned by another driver who had been blinded by the smoke. For the first time ever, the Indy 500 was halted due to an accident. Both McDonald and Eddie Sachs, the driver who had struck him, were killed. This led to safety changes, including teams switching to methanol from gas and carrying less fuel. Both Carroll Shelby and Mickey Thompson would serve as pallbearers at McDonald's funeral. The death had an understandably awful effect on Mickey. According to his daughter, Dave's death tore dad up like nothing else before. 
It was late at night, and I could hear him crying in the other room. It was the first time I had ever heard my dad cry. The reaction to the accident by others in the racing community was vicious. Car and driver writer David Davis Jr. <laughs> wrote, Hopefully we have seen the last of Mickey Thompson in Indianapolis. His cars were ill-conceived and ill-prepared and have permanently marred the escutcheon of American hot rodders. Escutcheon? They were ugly, which is not important. What is important is that they were totally unaerodynamic. Even with their 1937 spaceship-style motif, it has become obvious that Thompson's skill as an entrepreneur exceeds his ability as a designer-slash-constructor. It was a cruel attack. But... Uh, I don't know. I think that's kind of like apt. I think that guy's right on. All right. I don't think it is cruel. I think it's. I think that's one hundred percent. Also, he killed already killed six people. Yeah. Like Mickey Thompson has now killed eight people. Uh I mean, I think I think rally I think rally deaths are a different case. Sure, but he was playing a sport. When he killed six people. Right. You know what I mean? Like, he wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, six people died while I was curing cancer. Or like, six people died, but I saved 35. I you think, know, it was like, I think it's Thomas like, is, oh, I, I want to be, I want like a trophy. And so I do this dangerous thing and then these people died. I think, like this thing about fuel, gasoline is more explosive than methanol or what? Ironically, methanol actually doesn't, when methanol burns, there's not a lot of flame compared to gasoline. I'm not really sure what the reasoning is. So the 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 accident was like more severe because they used gasoline instead of methanol, and that gasoline was pushed by Ford, not Mickey, who wanted to use methanol. So the accident was more severe because of Ford. Uh, by the way, just want to thank Ford uh, Bronco for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Um, bring back Bronco. Great podcast. Check it out. <laughs> anyway, Mickey would make a couple of half-hearted returns to Indy 500 in the next few years, but it was clear that the crash had changed him. Instead of looking for the next frontier, he returned to his comfort zone, land speed records. Kind of a crazy comfort zone to have, but as we've established, Mickey Thompson was... Kind of a crazy dude. Crazy! Unlike Indy, drag racing and speed trials welcome innovators and mavericks. Ooh, that's some... That's some shade. Shots fired. Uh, in 1968, he drove three Ford Mustang Mach 1s at Bonneville, setting 295 distinct speed and endurance records and helping attract attention for the car, which would become available to the public the following year. Yeah, that was a total... Total marketing move, but still very cool. He also debuted a new vehicle, the Autolite Special, which was quickly nicknamed the Flying Needle. This thing looks so cool. It was 30 feet long and less than three feet wide, uh, just squeezing in twin Ford single overhead cam engines. An automatic transmission shifted the engines to second gear at 220 oh miles per hour and third gear at 320. Like, so first gear takes you up to 220 miles an hour? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah it probably That's takes nice. forever to get going. Yeah. Would someone tow this to get it started? You got to push them, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah like a truck behind you pushes it? Yep. That's yep. fun. Push starts. Yep. That's fun. I want to be um, that guy. I would love to go. 
like to Bonneville every year and just like do that for a team. Well, hey, we're uh, planning on going to Bonneville next year with the Roadster that we have. Can, so can maybe I you launch can, you? Maybe you can do that. Can I be your launcher? Yeah, maybe. Dude, I'll, like, yeah. I'll research it and practice. Let's talk. Let's uh, make a video to out of this. To me, that feels like a lineman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're like the center. Yeah, yeah. And I'm the quarterback. Yeah, you're the QB. I give you the ball. You throw it, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I was the center uh, in high school football. Yeah. But now I get to throw the ball. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, the car had a turning radius. The, the Autolite special had a turning radius of two degrees. Meaning it could only uh, drive in a straight line for the most part. The cost to build the car was over $100,000, which was three quarters of a million today. But at this point, Mickey had a host of sponsors, including Ford, Goodyear, and Gulf Oil. During testing, the car was clocked at 411 miles per hour, but conditions interfered with Mickey's official runs and he wasn't able to set the official record. Meanwhile, Mickey developed a new, quote, funny car Mustang. Funny cars being a class in drag racing where the drag car features a fiberglass body on top of a very short tube frame. The body can lift up. It's like on a hinge and it gives the dragster the appearance of a showroom model. But by this point, they were nowhere near stocked at all. Why are they called funny? Because they, they look funny. <laughs> <laughs> I assume. The end of the decade saw major changes in Mickey's life. He divorced Judy, his wife of over 20 years. The two had grown apart over the years, and Judy couldn't keep up with Mickey anymore on and off the track. He was a man who couldn't slow down. He also sold the Mickey Thompson Equipment Company to Colt Industries to start a new one, Mickey Thompson Advanced Engineering, which was focused on racing research and development. He's not super creative with like naming his companies. <laughs> <laughs> keep it simple. Name recognition, baby. That's all that matters. Mickey started racing in more far-flung events, including the Mexican 1000 in Baja with his son Danny navigating. They drove a Bronco. It was more about fun than being competitive, and Mickey became more known for his wipeouts than his finishes. LA Times writer Jim Murray lovingly roasted Mickey at the time, writing that quote, Saying Mickey Thompson is in a crash is like saying the sun is in the sky, a fish is in the water, a bird is in a tree. They haven't made a vehicle Mickey couldn't total. His friends can't recognize him right side up. He could play the captain of the Titanic without a script. <laughs> All right, well, Jim, Jim, I think we got the point. Um, I think. Jim, are you okay? I eat steak for lunch. <laughs> That's such a weird specific because it's like not that weird. But then you're like, oh, yeah, no one does eat steak for lunch. <laughs> no, dude. Like in the 50s, it'd be like, let's go eat a bunch of bourbon and steaks for lunch and then come back to work and, I don't know, take a nap. Despite his reckless reputation, Mickey proved to be a savvy businessman, especially when he could blend his deals with promotion. He founded Short Course Off-Road Enterprises, or SCORE, to promote off-road racing. Score organized the RV Spectacular in Riverside, California, and with his industry connections, he secured $200,000 in prizes. The event was a success, becoming a yearly event at the Riverside track and eventually drawing as many as 60,000 fans. Score soon expanded to sanction the Baja 500, the Baja 1000, and the San Felipe 250, which are still run today. Yeah, that's why I know that. I, I went down to Ensenada last year, 
and it was right before the Baja 500. And I was like, man, I got to come back for this. They love racing down there. It's super cool. In 1971, Mickey met a woman named Trudy Feller at a campsite on the Colorado River in Arizona. They were soon married. Hmm. And just like his first wife, Judy, Mickey would also go into business with Trudy. <laughs> the two founded the Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group, uh, which held supercross motorcycle racing and short course off-road racing events held in stadiums like the LA Coliseum. The business was a huge success. Instead of trying to get people out to the desert to watch off-road events, Mickey would bring the desert to the people. Super sick. Mickey Thompson was ahead of his time in many ways. Like Evil Knievel or David Blaine, he was a showman <laughs> who understood that he was his own brand. But under the promotional veneer, he was also an innovative pioneer who, especially in the sport of drag racing, pushed vehicles to new limits and set amazing new records. Unfortunately, though, his career and life were soon to be cut short by one of the darkest chapters in automotive history. He was a man who spent his life pursuing danger, but on his last day on earth, it was the danger that pursued him. The murder of Mickey Thompson. Next time on Pass Gas. Whoa. Heavy. Yeah. So this is a very up. Uh, this is a, probably one of my favorite episodes we've done so far. This is a, super cool. Yeah. It was really fun. And then you find out dude gets murdered. Yeah. So that's uh, a bit of a downer for sure. Um, but. We'll get into that next week. Uh, yeah, had fun. I'm very sweaty right now. Yeah. Uh, but what, like, what I've said it, we said it a few times in this episode, but what just a fun time to be like a tinkery car racy dude. Yeah, no wonder boomers are always like, ah, oh, things used to be better. Like, some, in some respects, they did. A lot of, you know, like civil rights, they didn't, but. <laughs> but, like, I, I live right by the, that, port and i would love to just go drag racing right now yeah or like tonight what's that uh bumper bumper tag they're talking about there's just like actual oh, yeah. tag, tag where you dude. play with your bumpers yeah yeah you just hit jesse does that jesse will run into the your butt at a <laughs> stop sign <laughs> um yeah i uh i don't know if i've mentioned it on the show but i was on a nostalgia funny car team nolan was the guy who caught the pistons on the bottom end that's right i took the oil pan off would get hot oil in my face Ow. all the time. Brake cleaner sprayed in my face. Eesh. Good time. It's just really hot. But anyway, the the crew chief of the team, his name was Smokey. Nice. Name's Smokey Allerman. Of course. Um, That's like such a badge of honor as a hot rod guy. When it's like, like the first time someone's like, sure, Smokey. You're like, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I hope this to be sticks. Like known, <laughs> I hope this to sticks. Like, for people to call you your nickname instead of your 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 given name, that's a pretty that's pretty yeah. cool. Um, but anyway, Smokey was around at this time. Like, he probably knows all the people involved in this story. Uh, but man, you just like listen to these guys talk. All these old guys at these drag racing events talk about all these, just all this history that they were able to see and participate in. It really is. It's, it's so cool. It was like the Wild Wild West. Like, anything went. It really and was. People were just kind of like, I hope this works. I hope I don't die. <laughs> yep. It was, yeah, it was literally the Wild West. And it, yeah, it's cool. It's cool that we like live in this city. Like, yes. I know where all those places are. It was really fun going to yeah. Bruce Myers' like private garage and seeing all these like pictures of what Beverly Hills used to look like when there was a huge board track race there. And like, yeah, 
We talked about that in the uh, Hells Angels episode. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about uplifting. Anyway. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast channel yet, please uh, consider doing so. You know, leave us good reviews on your podcast platform of your choice. Recommend the show to somebody. Get a lot of feedback on past gas. And I just want to thank you guys for listening because it's um, one of my favorite things that we do here on Donut. We got some really cool fans that listen to the podcast. If you have any suggestions for episodes that you want to hear, let us know. And I guess keep it, keep it juiced. More power, baby. I love you. All right. Be kind. See you next time. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.